Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylogue team. And we're going to talk today, uh, the first of two podcasts, on Star Wars and why Star Wars is Star Wars, because of course The Force Awakens is on everyone's mind, it's set to break all box office records ever made ever by anything and all that kind of stuff so you know what can we learn from star wars what makes star wars star wars i mean there's no shortage of big sci-fi blockbusters but star wars is uh is i suppose the mount everest right and there isn't the second one really Except for the the one I'm writing right now. Yeah, exactly. Apart from the one that we've all written in our heads. <laughs> Isn't your thing about werewolves? Are they in space? They are now. Okay. With lightsabers. <laughs> and everybody is everybody's dad. Ah, that's good. What a twist. What a twist. I think that'll work. Uh, I certainly would watch that. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why is Star Wars Star Wars? Well... There's part one. Part one. So Yeah, there's two parts to this. The first one uh, we'll talk about is world building. Uh, the world of Star Wars. Uh, there's no way you can talk about the success of Star Wars and not consider uh, how well-crafted the world in which it takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, that's the very beginning of every one of them. And that just tells you, look, this is where this world is. And the world is so palpable and so well realized that you, you, Star Wars, a lot of it is owed, a lot of its success is owed to the brilliance of that world. And one of the key things about that world is how lived in it feels. Um, it doesn't feel artificial, it doesn't feel like a set. Uh, it feels like a, a very sort of, a, this is actually a world that exists and we're just happening to kind of waltz in and see all these little elements. And that part of the reason it feels that way is because when they made the film, they didn't have an enormous budget and they used a lot of military surplus elements. And so these things were used. So a lot of the things that we see in Star Wars, you know, Aunt Beru's uh, milk glass and all those things, the Tunisian huts, these things are things that were already there that they co-opted for the film, as opposed to, say, the big problem with the prequels, which were almost entirely shot in front of green screen. And they don't feel like a lived-in world. They feel like a very artificial world that doesn't feel like a real world. I mean, even... Is that... it? Is that CGI related, or do you think it's, it, it's, it's more than that? It, the problem is when you do CGI, because there's nothing practical, and because it's just been put up there, um, you don't have that... Like, the actors, for example, don't have chairs to sit in. So with, with CGI, the limit's your imagination as opposed to the limit of what you can physically make or get your hands... Yeah, well, you see, with CGI, you can do whatever you want. You can have any sort of building, any sort of architecture, any sort of gravity, whatever you want. But the problem is, is that the actors can't interact with it in the same way. And when you have animation, that's pure animation, so like in Pixar or something, uh, the animators have to consider every little thing constantly. They have to build everything up. So it's there. But whereas uh, with a real set, I mean, there's there's virtues and vices to all these different techno te different things. You could, with CGI, get a wonderful world. There are lots of wonderful CGI worlds. But the problem with the prequel specifically 
is that everything felt like it was just a backdrop and people are in front of the backdrop, not interacting with the set. The set, the world that they're in, doesn't feel like a real world that they're inhabiting. It just feels like a world that they're walking in front of. Whereas in Star Wars, partly because of a lack of budget, partly because of the practical nature of the effects and the lack of CGI, things felt like they were lived in. And so that added a real palpableness to this world that helped sell the fact that it was wondrous. Because uh, when you have a fantasy story, no matter what that fantasy story is, uh, the atmosphere of the world that's being created is this sense of imagine this were real. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine robots would walk and talk and act like us. That's what Isaac Asimov would ask. Right, just play along with that. That's the suspension of disbelief. Imagine this is real. Imagine there are elves and wizards. Imagine there's this. And Star Wars, is, imagine this is a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away with spaceships and so forth. And by having it be um, so lived in that world, uh, it feels like, oh, I can imagine this thing is a real world. I can actually imagine it. I can. I can. There's all these little elements. I can imagine. There's a history I don't know about. There's there. Um. There. There. Presumably more to it than just being lived in, though. Yes, there is more to it. Uh, you need to, the world. If, for, in order for it to feel, uh, uh, like a real world that you can imagine, um, fantasy, above all others, has to be really, really consistent. Uh, incredibly internally consistent. You can't mess around, because the audience. Uh, will give you that sort of one free miracle. Superman can fly. Fine. But everything else is right. Um, okay, fine. Toys can speak. That's fine. But everything else stays the same. And not only that, once you say, okay, Superman flies and he flies in this way, or toys are working this way, or in Star Wars, ships fly this way, and blasters work this way, you can't then change the rules. Because if you change the rules, the audience goes, you're making this up. And then they no longer buy that this is a real world they, they can imagine it. They don't imagine it as a real world. They can tell you're playing around. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is if you take a show like Fargo or the film even, uh, that has lots of little coincidences in it that are kind of inconsistent. But you kind of buy it because in real life, there is a sort of inconsistency to, to reality. <laughs> Things sometimes just don't make sense. Thing, sometimes you'll do one thing and it works and another time it doesn't. Just look at how computers are, right? Every time a computer is like the same moronic thing. You press a button, it turns on. But every now and again, you press the button, it doesn't turn on. It doesn't work. Why? No explanation. Nothing like that. But in fantasy, that's not how it would work. If in fantasy they have a machine and it works a certain way and then suddenly for no reason at all it doesn't work. Do you think in fantasy you have to stay clear of coincidence? Uh, well, like any story, coincidence becomes less tolerable the further in you go right. into the story. But um, with fantasy, I think coincidence is, is less tolerable than it would normally be. Would Sim it just get confusing for the audience? Simply because the audience will see through. Right. They'll see through. It won't be wondrous anymore. It'll just be odd. Um, and what's interesting is if you go, on, on the other hand, to absurdism. Absurdism 
which is that feeling of none of this is meant to be real. Like Wayne's World. Wayne's World, Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny, yeah. right? No one's sitting there thinking, imagine if a duck could talk. <laughs> that's not a thing that's I do happened. every day. Yeah, right? You don't think like that when you're watching the Looney Tunes. Um, but uh, so in those worlds, their inconsistency is an enormous part of the fun because it's not supposed to be even remotely realistic. Um in any way, shape, or form. So in Wayne's world, it's funny that they talk to the camera and that they have multiple endings and all that kind of stuff. And it's funny that in Looney Tunes, when Daffy Duck has a disintegrating gun and he fires it, the gun disintegrates. <laughs> that kind of stuff is hilarious because things don't work the way you're meant to because it's supposed to be absurd. It's supposed to be preposterous. But with fantasy, because you're trying to convince people that this world is a world they have to imagine is real, you have to be a lot stricter than you would even in realism about what you can get away with in this world. You have to say, look, these are the rules and I can't break them. And that's a very important part of it. And then once you once you create that world with Star Wars, not only do they go, here are the rules and we can't break them. The force, like one of the, uh, you could say one of the rules that Star Wars broke was explaining the force. And saying the force. Was I was going to bring that up because yeah. uh, they went back to that in episode one, didn't they? Yeah, with the midichlorians. Yeah, and they said like it's little creatures inside you, and it's like no, no, no. You said the force is a mystical thing that just it's an energy that binds everyone. You didn't say it was little people inside our blood. It, it, that's not how the force I, works. You I don't changed think Liam Neeson force... used the phrase "little people." He kind of basically may as well have. <laughs> there are little people inside the blood. We will find them. Right. It's so he. Star Wars, like, it said, okay, the Force works this way. Then in the first episode, they went, okay, the Force doesn't work that way, really. And it never really made any sense. And so they never really bring it up again. <laughs> like, it, that didn't, that didn't did fly. It? I mean, it, it didn't spoil anything, did it? No, it didn't. But at the same, it just was like an annoying thing. It took you out of the world. Oh, I see, okay. Uh, much in the same way that um, uh, other characters that just felt fake and artificial like Jar Jar and everything, they take you out that world. So Star Wars uh, does very well what fantasy stories need to do. It's got a consistent reality that works the same way. These characters all work the same way all the time. Lightsabers work a certain way. I mean, there's times where the special effects don't match what you would expect, but you kind of forgive it. It's an interesting thing. The audience can tell when... The problem is not like it's people are very forgiving of special effects. It's, yeah. it's kind of funny. Uh, you kind of go, Oh, I get what you were trying to do, but there isn't the technology to do it, provided you do it well. You know, th there's a bit in Star Wars where uh, Liam, ne uh, not Liam, Obi Wan Kenobi cuts off a guy's arm and the arm has blood around it. And later on, you find out, Well, no, lightsabers are super hot when they cut someone, it just cuts it clean. There's no blood. So, why is there blood in that one? It's one of those things where it's like you have to be a pedant to really care. It's not It's not a big enough deal. There must be fans that care about that. Yes, there are. <laughs> I'm sure there's actually a fan theory about why the lightsaber caused blood in one of them. <laughs> it's probably in the novels. Copious message board threads. Exactly. Disgusting. But by and large, like the audience is quite forgiving. But the point is, Star Wars does this thing where it feels like a real world in the sense that it has a history we haven't seen, but all the characters know about. You know, the Clone Wars. They never explain what the Clone Wars are. They just mention the Clone Wars. As th and is, they act like, oh, we know what that is. Isn't that one of the nice things about Star Wars? Yes. The, wor the world is so sort of vast in terms of history, but yes. we don't know 
anything. We don't know everything. Exactly. And and it's, I guess it's what made the prequels possible. That they can yes. go back and we care enough that we want to see it. Yeah, we can see what the Clone Wars are and yeah. stuff. But the prequels, they don't feel really like there was any past before them, right? It's True. almost like the world came into existence at the beginning of Phantom Menace. There's nothing there. And in fact, it, it when part of part of fantasy is that it creates this tone of wonder. Imagine this was real, right? But at the same time, uh in order to imagine it's real, there has to be certain elements that we recognize as sort of reality. And that is like people have existed in this world from before we saw them and will continue to exist afterwards. If we watch a, a series set in the real world, people will talk about events uh, and they'll use shorthand. And we and writers don't worry about this because they presume, oh, the audience is aware of current affairs. Right. So someone might just go, oh, yeah, like what happened on 9-11. We don't need to explain mm. that. Whereas in Star Wars, they do the same thing. Oh, you fought in the Clone Wars. We don't know anything about the Clone Wars. They don't explain it. Nothing like that. It's just a thing that happened and we pick up. Oh, we're like a tourist. We start picking up all these little elements. Right, even the name has a sense of wonder as well. Though, exactly. Right? Clone Wars. Well, so what does that even mean? Yeah. How could you have a war of clones? Wouldn't everyone be the same? How would that... What? Ah? And all this kind of stuff. So it's a very lived-in world. It looks lived-in. The characters talk like that. And it's very consistent, which is all very important for fantasy in a way that it isn't for others in order for the audience to get that sense of wonder. And... Um, What's interesting about this is uh, there's always been a little thought experiment, which is in fantasy, you will sometimes have a character. The world, the fantasy world, is completely self-contained and it's not. there's no real world. Our world isn't involved. Mm. So in Star Wars, there's no Earth. I mean, okay, technically it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so that implies, okay, Earth does exist in the world of Star Wars, right? Technically, but really it doesn't. We don't. I'd. You, I, I've never sat there wondering what's happening on Earth at right. the time. Yeah, is this set in you know the Middle Ages? Like, yeah, no, it's not a deal. It's not a thing. It may as well not be anything to do with Earth. Um, but uh, so some characters, some of these shows like Star Wars, Earth has nothing to do with it. But in others, Earth is central, and the character goes to this fantasy world from Earth, um, and that's obviously a, a thing that we've seen loads of times. Flight of the Navigator, all those kind of stories, right? Kid wakes up on Mars or something. Star Wars, if Luke was a kid in Manhattan who gets somehow beamed a long time ago into a galaxy far, far away and is encountering all these characters, it destroys the world of Star Wars. Like it's it just it's it ruins Star Wars, right? But on the other hand, in John Carter, uh, you have this great character who lives in Virginia and wakes up on Mars. And now he's on this planet and dealing with all that. And they both work brilliantly. So this device of having it be connected to our real world or not is a choice that you can have. And in the case of Star Wars, it would ruin it. Would it, would it work the other way around, say, John Carter, if... Um, if Earth was out of the picture. Yeah, if John Carter was just some guy on Barsoom. Yeah, or um, I know you've got that whole, the, you know, part of the ending is he's then, you know, trapped back on um, yeah. on Earth. But could you have, say, a different planet and create that same sense of wonder? Or with John Carter, do you need him to be? 
Well, I think that that's the the thing. Like, it probably would ruin John Carter to have him do the other thing around. And why is that? <clears throat> I I don't know. I mean, that there's it's just one of those choices that you can make, and it would seem to me that. I mean, obviously, with Star Wars, you couldn't do things like Luke couldn't really be Vader's son, right? Oh, if you had him from if Earth. If he came from Earth. I mean, you, maybe you could. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. The point is... Like, Unless Vader did as well, twist. Right, exactly. But uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is a very recent one as well, where the kid wakes up in the oh, in, yeah, in space and everything. Yeah. Uh, and really, it's not served much. Earth isn't really a big deal in Guardians of the Galaxy. I'd, I'm assuming that will play into future Avengers movies, Maybe. won't it? Because they oh, had yeah. to tie it to the Avengers world, yeah, but, which is very much so. Yeah, uh, but the thing is, Star-Lord could come from another planet in the Marvel Universe. He doesn't have to come from Earth, right? Um, but what's interesting is that that device, whether or not the character is from our reality and then they go to this alternate reality or whatever, this fantasy world, What's interesting is that it it would it can destroy a, a series, but as much as it can make one, and the world that is created, that sense of wonder that's created, um, how you the, how you can create it is often there has to be sort of juxtaposition with our world in some sense, because otherwise, if it looks like our world, there's no imagination, and if it's completely and utterly divorced, it's very hard to imagine it. Because you can't, it doesn't feel real. It feels too far removed, and so Star Wars, because everything is sort of consistent. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy is a much sillier world than Star Wars, right? I mean, there's a raccoon and a tree, and it's it's kind of really silly that world in a way. Yeah. Uh, where Star Wars is a lot more serious in that world, um, but then you know, Galaxy Quest is really silly. Right and Galaxy Quest, they they wake up in in the fantasy world as well. So there, there's it's just an interesting thing that that device can be destructive and constructive depending on how you apply it, and it's to do with just that credibility. What kind of uh, wonder are you creating? Um, how how I mean, it, with the characters like Star Lord and John Carter, and the Galaxy Quest guys, it's got a lot more escapism to it. There's a lot more of an escapist element, whereas with Star Wars, it's less about escapism, and it's it's more about sort of um, it becomes a bit more allegorical. Is that then, therefore, uh, just a, an interesting thought experiment you could play with your own work if you were exactly. writing in that genre? Exactly. That that's the important thing to realize is that all of these things are choices, and so a lot of the time people will presume a choice is something they have to do. It's one of the problems with any sort of genre studies. People can't tell that a convention and a cliche, the difference between them is a cliche is how you do something. You do something the same way as everyone else did. The convention is what you just have to do in order to get it to work. Yeah. So the convention is there's got to be a way to make the audience buy your world, to get into your world, to ground them in some way. The cliche is, oh, they come from Earth and they wake up in this world. Right. That's a cliche. You can do it very well. Star-Lord, John Carter, Galaxy Quest, all do it brilliantly. But that doesn't mean you have to do it that way. And your fantasy world might be greatly improved by not doing that or doing that. You might realize, actually, my fa the problem with my fantasy world is it's too out there. And I need a normal, everyday setting to bring them into it. 
Now you mentioned convention. Let's talk about genre then. Yeah. And subgenres. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Star Wars. There's so there's three main subgenres of fantasy. Uh, fantasy, as I say, is a, is the is a genre of setting, and so the core element of a fantasy of a sorry of a setting genre like reality or fantasy is the atmosphere and in the case of fantasy it's wonder imagine this were real and so there's three sort of sub-genres three ways of creating that wonder uh, one is the human fantasy where the imagination there's always a, some sort of bit of magic or a miracle or a wish however you want to call it uh, and in human fantasy it's our world but there's one difference Fish can talk. Toys are alive. Um, people are cars. That kind of stuff, <laughs> right? That kind of thing. It's uh, there's a often an anthropomorphic element to it. Uh, animals know kung fu. Animals know kung fu. Exactly. It's just it's uh, big is another great example of human, human fantasy. One change. Right. He's a thirty year old. He's got. He's a thirteen year old with a 30 year, thirty year old body. One change. That's it. Bam. Uh, Groundhog Day. He's trapped in a time warp. That's it. So <clears throat> there's one little change, and that's it. One phenomena. That's all that fantasy world will do. Toys are alive. That's it. Nothing else. Uh, the next one is magical fantasy, where you have this world of magic, which is that there is a uh, a world in which there is a hierarchical system of laws that sort of transcend physical laws and things like that. So... In uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender, it's the four elements. People can control the four elements. You have to master that world. Um, and so magical fantasy, are pe- often the characters have to master those talents. And they tap into a sort of a second layer of reality. Does that extend... When, when we say fantasy, just yeah. stepping back slightly. When we say fantasy, yeah. I think the, the typical... Uh, thought is to go to something like Lord of the Rings yes. or Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Does that fit into that yeah. hierarchical when, magic? Exactly. When you look at Lord of the Rings, for example, the magic in the world, the wizards, the wandering, and all these things, you have to master that power. Right. And not only that, those worlds are very much about wonder. Imagine that there was a world like this. It's not realism. It's not trying to convince you this is a real world. It's yeah. not allegorical. It's not trying to be a symbol for something else. It's not um, absurd. It's trying to create a sense of wonder that this is a real world that you can make believe in. Okay. And yeah. Well, what about the third one then? The third one is uh, science fiction, which used to be called science fantasy, by the way. And science fiction, uh, what that does is it says technology is magic. That the human ability to create uh, is is the equivalent of magic, and what's interesting is the magic in uh, in science fiction is always completely amoral. Anyone can use it. Anyone can pick up a blaster and fire it, but not everyone can use magic. I see. Um, and so, uh, science fantasy. What's interesting about science fantasy, as well as people get really hung up on the futurism aspect of it, predicting the future and. It, and how technology catches up with science fiction. But but the point here is it's not to do with the actual nature of whether or not we have blasters or spaceships. Rather, it's the, the quality of what it's like having them in our world. So in science fantasy, 
when you have a phone that you can fit in the palm of your hand and can connect to an imaginary <laughs> database full of information, in fantasy, that is a wondrous piece of technology. You go, oh my, wow. Like, if you watch Minority Report, it's already dated. Yeah. Right? Like, our stuff is better than what they have in Minority Report. But when you watch Minority Report, or when you read Jules Verne, anything like that, the, there's a sense of wonder in every piece of technology that's presented, even if the technology is archaic. Whereas um, a lot of sci-fi uh, doesn't seem like sci-fi, because what they try to do is they try to make it really realistic. And so it starts being less and less wondrous. And then it becomes really, really pretentious as a result. But um, science science fiction, science fantasy, this stuff, people think um, Frankenstein started it. But what people don't realize is that a technology, our views of technology have changed. And I would say that the first sci-fi story ever thought of was Atlantis. Because it's about that kind of thing. That kind of wonder. Yeah. It's about that. Imagine there's a group of people who have such control over the world and their emotions and their intellect and all this stuff. And oh, look, they, but they couldn't hold back nature, and they got it's, it's a cautionary tale. Okay, so let's um, let's bang this conversation into Yui and take this back to Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. So Star Wars, Star Wars combines two of these. Star Wars is both magical fantasy and science fiction. It looks a lot like science fiction. There's huge amounts of science fiction elements. We have a lot of wonder for the technology, for the starships, for the blasters, for the lightsabers. The Death Star, I mean, there's a space station so big it looks like a moon, and it can blow up planets, right? Incredible wonder there. But at the same time, there's the Force, and you have to master the Force, and not everyone can use the Force, and there's a good side to the Force, and there's an evil side to the Force. And the Force can control you, and you can control the Force. So there's wizards running around spaceships. And one of the great joys of Star Wars is the incredible brilliance in how they've combined them so well. Lightsabers are space-age swords that can parry blasters. Star Wars is not the only one to have ever done, you know, Lord of the Rings in space. It's not the only one to have ever gone, let's take... Um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and put it in space. But it just does it so well. It just does it very well. There's loads of ways to combine. It, when, when, you know, people sometimes wonder, how can you combine genres? The question is not, can you combine them? The question is, in what way will you do it? Yeah. Because there are so many possibilities to just combining the same two. And Star Wars just has a brilliant combination for both of these. Uh, as I say, the lightsaber is the best example of it. Uh, it's just, it's a sword. It's a space sword. That's what it is. It's just great, and it's it's just perfect. So, and such a good idea that there's still um, <laughs> unique variations on it. I mean, the the, the double ended lightsaber from Episode One. Yeah, seeing that in the trailer, yeah, there was um, oh my god, it's a double ended lightsaber. It's got two ends. How does that work? <laughs> Why? And like even in the new one, the the Force Awakens trailer, you can see the the lightsaber has these two the little hilt. things. Yeah, the, the hilt, hilt that is. comes out. You go, oh wow, it's got a hilt. <laughs> and also, it's uh, really bit bitty and and um, sparky, and it looks like it's been sort of built badly. It yeah. doesn't look like a proper. It's not like a f nicely, beautifully done lightsaber. It's like a you know, an, like a it's like a sword that has had like it hasn't been sharpened properly. It's just been kind of cobbled together and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, ah, it's a sword, but it's still cool. And you get all the, and so you've got people with this awesome laser energy swords doing swashbuckling 
with wizard powers casting spells at each other, but an asteroid fields with planets exploding, and it's just they put it all together. Okay. Well. So bottom line, Star Wars is excellent <laughs> in terms of world building. The world is great. Yeah. So how about um, uh, examples that don't work? Yeah, because if you don't, if you don't have, if your world for whatever reason, it's, it's not a problem if you want your world to be fantasy, realistic, absurd. It doesn't matter. The point is the audience needs to get what you're trying to do. Yeah. And if they don't, they can't buy the world. They won't buy the events that happen in it. And so. As much as I love Cars, the Pixar film, I love Cars, but Pixar's Cars hasn't done as well as its other ones because people just get confused. They don't get it. Is Cars meant to be a symbol of human excess? Is that the point? It's an allegory, right? So it's like, it's like we're supposed to look at the world and go, this is like if cars were people and then or is it fancy are we supposed to imagine that cars can talk but if that's the, where are the people is it not or what's going on it's not is it, what uh, uh, wait is this not supposed to be real at all maybe it's an absurd thing but no it's very consistent i don't get it what's going on so people get very confused and then they ask questions like how did they reproduce is it intro <laughs> um <laughs> when one da- when daddy car loves a mummy car very much um yeah exactly no you said you mentioned consistency so cars is consistent within its yes self it does things very well however yes. however it it seems to be incredibly allegorical and uh and the thing is p- people can't you see cars is an allegory as well as fantasy it's both right uh and People, the the way they've connected them, people just aren't getting it. Because right. normally when they see shows like this, normally it's an anthropomorphism of, say, animals, right? So it's like a Finding Nemo or a Bug's Life or whatever. People are in that world. Yeah. But we just don't see them, right? Cars, the people aren't in that world. And so no, people are getting... because it would confused. be odd having somebody sit inside Lightning McQueen. Exactly. So, but people are then confused. But like, hold on a minute. Where are the people? I don't get it. And so people... I didn't get confused. I loved it. I, I loved Cars as well. Right? But, but I'm just saying, a lot of people... There's got to be a reason why it's yeah, got 30-odd percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Exactly. It's not the story that's the problem. The story's wonderful. The problem is people... When you look at people's criticism of Cars, their problem is they don't get that world. They don't get the linking between the allegory and the fantasy. They just It doesn't click for them. Okay. For a lot of people. So Cars is great and people are stupid. So... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, another one that was a, that made this mistake was Noah, with Aaron Daronofsky, that he directed. Darren Daronofsky. Da- or Aaron Daronofsky. I, I don't know. Uh, that the guy who did Black Swan and the Wrestler. Darren Aronofsky. Is that his name? Yes. Okay. He made Noah and uh, with Russell Crowe and uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jennifer Connelly. And the problem with Noah is you can't tell. Is this supposed to be factualism? This really happened, right? Or is it realism? This could have happened. Or is it allegory? This is like what happened. Or is it fantasy? This imagine this happened. Like we can't because it's Noah, and we're not sure. Like is this actually what the Bible says or or whatever could or the, not? How is this? Do you think this happened, Mister Aronofsky? Could the uh, could Noah have worked if they'd 
um, if if the audience or if they made it clear to the audience which one it was. Well, uh, I think they did try to make it clear in the sense that I don't think they know. Um, I think they 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 just kind of. I I feel like Noah would have been a lot better had it just been if they'd called it Noah. They could have called it Noah everything, but made it like a, a obviously post-apocalyptic world that had nothing really to do with the Bible. Right. Uh, because people go, oh, it's a fantasy inspired by Noah. Okay. People I'm would get you. that. Do you see what I mean? But as I was watching Noah, I couldn't get into this world because I just couldn't work out what kind of world this was. Is this real or isn't this? Am I supposed to pretend... I don't get it. Am I grasping if I say that was a problem as well with um, the Robin Hood remake that they did? Or the Russell Crowe? Yes. I didn't see that yet. Uh, was it good? I didn't see it. I was hoping you had. No, no. <laughs> we'll cut this bit out. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but another one uh, that I lo- that we both loved, but again, like Cars, people couldn't grasp, was Firefly. Yes, love Firefly. So, Firefly... Uh, takes the Western and puts it in space. Like, Star Wars takes the magical world and puts that in space. Firefly takes the Western and put it in space. And at the same time, it tries to do things with our real world, such as presume that China and America will be the two big superpowers that everyone just speaks Mandarin badly, mm-hmm. as well as American, right? Um, but badly, wonderfully, right? <laughs> yeah, though th- no, it's just, it's funny, there's just one episode where there's someone who can actually speak Mandarin in it and you can tell that none of these characters can speak Mandarin <laughs> at all uh, none of the actors rather can speak Mandarin uh, but Firefly combined the western and the and the, the sci-fi worlds and a lot of people just didn't get that, I didn't get that for at least uh, two episodes and then I said oh it's a western in space and then suddenly I'm like how did I miss that because it's not it's not like it's hiding that right? it's so clear but it's just one of those things where once you click oh I get what this world is like suddenly you can buy it but if you can't click that world nothing else will work you just you won't buy it you sit there and you go this is clearly nonsense I don't feel any empathy for these characters uh, the story suddenly every single plot hole in the story becomes this enormous unsolvable deal breaker because the world is just so Okay. Does world building then um, th- does this apply to, or can can these sort of um, uh, principles apply to something that isn't fantasy, say realism? Uh, it, they all do. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really remarkable because if you can get like what Star Wars has done, this incredible world with a fantasy world of, of wizards firing lightning from their hands at laser swords. It's amazing <laughs> that like a world where you're just trying to copy real life uh, can feel false. But that's what happened with Orange is the New Black. Um, bec- um, I watched only the first season, but I gave up after the first season. I know you watched two. I've, I've watched three, two and three. Oh, yeah. you watched the whole of it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, the problem with the Orange is the New Black is you just don't, the world, you just don't buy it. Because... Um, the the whole concept of Orange is the New Black is every single woman in prison is a victim of society and it's not their fault. And you just sit there and you go, that's just not the world, that's not real. Like, not every single woman has been a victim of society. Not every single male prison guard is a, a horrible, misogynistic monster. Like, that's just not how it is. Um, obviously... Like, some people are victims of society. It's not like the system is perfect. But 
the main problem with Orange is the New Black is it creates this world that says if you can understand why someone has committed a crime, they should be absolved of it. The thing is as well with the, with Orange is the New Black is that problem uh, only gets worse later on because yeah. in the first season, you I, I, I stuck with it longer because um, I, I got the sense that, okay, so they're focusing on a few characters and you think, okay, they're victims. Yeah. And of course, there are going to be characters that aren't victims. And I yeah. know there's one in season one and there's one in season two. Yeah. Um, but the more they go through in season two and later in season three, they focus these... Um, you know, small uh, backstory segments on all these ancillary characters, mm. and they are all still victims. Yeah, and so you go right out into the the kind of far reaches of the cast. Yes, um, and it's the same for every single character. It's, yeah, it's very repetitive, and it just it doesn't feel like the, like we you can't buy that this is this could be the real world. It's realism, so you think this could be real, and you go, but it. It couldn't be real. Not every single per- woman in prison is a victim of society. And um, furthermore, the, the morality of that world just feels off because as you, it's basically saying if you know why someone committed a crime, they don't deserve to be punished for it. And of course, that that's just not the case. Uh, there are some crimes, you know, you can understand why uh, someone does something horrible. That doesn't mean that they didn't do something horrible and it doesn't mean that the reasons they did it were good reasons or anything like that people do bad things to each other it's just a fact of life and that our system while horribly flawed <laughs> uh by and large works more than it doesn't it's not a great system it's huge huge problems there's enormous problems with it uh institutionalized problems as well but orange is the new black is so didactic and so repetitive on that one note that you just walk away and go, this isn't the real world. I don't buy this world. I don't... I, like, the characters, the actors are good. So you empathise with them. I think that's one of the reasons um, yeah. that I, I stuck with it for so long was because the, the, the actors are so watchable. Yeah. And there's a charm to it. Yeah. It's nicely done, right? Yeah. The style oh, yeah, yeah, is yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, it's not... It's, it's quite well written. Um, it's... It's funny. Um, I mean, the chicken episode was particularly funny, yeah. right? Uh, and you've got yeah, you've got this great cast, but you're, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I'm, I, I, it just feels like you're trying to make a political point, and it doesn't feel like a real point that you. It doesn't feel like a, a real thing. Yeah. It just feel, you, you, it you feels like it. It, it feels like an it. essay. Uh, and by the way, this is also uh, a thing that happens with a lot of people directors who have a very specific style. People can't buy the world. Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino's characters speak with such a stylistic dialogue that are so referencing, referential about movies and things. It doesn't feel like the real world. Whereas Anderson, everything is so perfectly framed. And everything was... <laughs> like, people go, this isn't the real world. I don't get it. And with these with these people... Uh, the Coen brothers, theirs looks right, but their choice of events is really odd because they suddenly have these weird coincidences happen and... Almost sometimes nothing happens, and yeah. it's, it feels almost anticlimactic. So this is with these directors, why they are so divisive in that, exactly because it takes a while, and suddenly you click, and you go, ah, I get the kind of world they're presenting. I get it now, uh, and it's not like you get it in terms of ah, I'm able to articulate it in a the- <laughs> thesis with with a scholarly review. I mean, you just get it in your something heart. clicks with you. Yeah, exactly. You go, I- I've got it now. 
And Tarantino, I didn't get him until Inglorious Bastards. And I watched Inglorious Bastards, and because it was set in World War Two, and because he killed Hitler, <laughs> and I go, ah, okay, he's he's it's it's a sort of really highly stylized romantic view of reality, almost right. <laughs> it's like reality is seen through the lens of of, of a movie, right? It's it's everything's really exa- uh, exaggerated. I get it. And Wes Anderson, I didn't care for too much until Moonrise Kingdom. And then, like, oh, he's he's filming it like a storybook. It's like a kid's story. That's the world that I'm in. It's a kid's stories world, right? Everything is really clear. Everything is really methodical. And it's very... and it, it's, it's not going to rile you up. It's very quiet. You know? It's like, you, it's, it's like you're supposed to just... Here you go, little kid. Read this book and be quiet for a couple of hours. And that's how he's kind of done it. And you go, I get this world. It's a nice sort of make-believe world. Okay... And um, so when when people sometimes just react strongly and they go, I, I, I'm done with this thing, sometimes it's got nothing to do with the story, it's got nothing to do with the characters, it's got nothing to do with the actors, it's just the world that you're in, people can't buy it. And Star Wars, Star Wars, you know, that world is so sellable right <laughs> uh, it just you get it you go aha they're wizards in space right got it and the whole thing just goes beautifully from that so let's let's put a nice button on this then um, moving forward these kind of things we've talked about how do we take this to our own writing how do we apply these principles well the the interesting thing is well first of all as I mentioned <clears throat> there's all these choices that you may not realize are choices uh, we just take reality for granted a lot of the time. Um, we take sci-fi cliches for granted. We take <clears throat> real-world cliches for granted. And we don't stop and really research those worlds. So there's lots and lots of choices that are available. And the other thing to realise is that your world, your audience will buy the story, depending on how reasonable your world is, because they know only certain events are possible in certain worlds. And so if um, your world is sprawling and makes no sense, they won't buy any of the events that happen in it. Whereas if the world is uh, understandable and they get it, even if the world is preposterous and ridiculous and made with inconsistent coincidences and all that, they, they get that kind of world, they understand what kind of events are possible. And then that lets them have narrative drive. You can't have narrative drive and suspense if they can't, foresee what possible consequences there are to our actions they need to be able to understand oh what's going to happen next well that means they have to kind of understand the nature of causality in this world otherwise that won't happen and so there's all these choices that are available and not only are there these choices available but there are multiple types of settings and they're all combinable in different ways and just taking star wars and looking at how they combine magic and science together is one thing and looking how they ground this world while at the same time keeping it wondrous there's so many tools and techniques that they use would be very valuable even if you're running realism because with realism you can then change wonder for plausibility how do you keep this world plausible and and uh, not only how do you keep this world plausible but uh you can also ask this question of, okay, what other elements of reality am I going to put in here? Because reality is this huge spectrum for many different cultures. 
So what is it about our culture that looks, how do we look at reality and how, how does that happen? How do I get people into this world? And how do I get them to buy it? Even if you're doing something very small, like you're trying to tell a story about just one person uh, trying to find love or something, you go, okay, you know, what is it about our world that makes love so hard to find? It's funny, the way you talk about this, you suddenly realize how many options you do have and how many choices you can make. And on the one yeah. hand, that can be incredibly daunting. Yes. Um, and so you may resort to cliches, but on the other hand, it's actually quite liberating because you can do absolutely anything. Yeah, I remember when I was, uh, I, I read, I don't know how many of these books and articles on how to world build. They always do the same thing. They always, this is how they always work. <clears throat> it is, here are a list of questions to ask yourself about the world and fill them in. What kind of rituals does my world have? Would be one thing, you know, what kind of religion, whatever. Uh... When is it set? In the past and the future. What happened before this? What happened after this? This is a checklist. Always change. And I started compiling all these lists together. And I ended up, no joke, with 250 questions. <laughs> and I was running a story and I answered all 250. And by the time I'd finished, I'd come up with 50 more. <laughs> For example, what is the sanitation like in my world? Important question. It might be if your story involves the sewers, right? But maybe not. And these questions, you can go on forever because <laughs> it just... You're basically trying to recreate all of reality. And that's just not <laughs> the correct way to look at it. The point is not to try and build all these things. You need to think of it. You're creating a world for a story. You're not trying to actually create a real world for people to live in that's supposed to be like a logical on the other hand with a world rich enough i'm sure writers would know the answer to the question for example yes george lucas knew what uh what happened with garbage disposal he did on the death star on the death star that's right <laughs> but i have a feeling if you asked him what the history of tatooine was he probably wouldn't be able to tell you uh because it just isn't relevant uh it doesn't matter what the history of Tatooine is. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong. There's, there's certainly nothing wrong with like working out what the history of Tatooine is or whatever. There's nothing wrong with having answered all these questions, but people make it sound like you have to answer all these questions. It's just not the case. What you really need to do is you need to understand the practicality of the world in terms of your storytelling. You want to have a world that is deep enough and rich enough that you can create scenes out of and that the audience will buy and understand and follow through their world. But at the same time, you don't want to just keep trying to create minutiae. You have to understand the difference between an actual sort of setup and ammunition for story and triviality. You need to be able to tell that difference. And so what's sanitation like? You don't need to know unless you go, you know what, what if... Where would they escape? Oh, they'd be able to escape through a sewage duct or something, right? How would sanitation work on a space station? Then you think it through. Yeah. But you don't need to have that beforehand, <laughs> right? <laughs> Otherwise, you'll just lose yourself. So there's all these choices. There's all these questions you can ask. But the point is not to try and dot every I, cross every T. The point is to really keep your eye on the ball and go, how does this help me tell the story I'm telling? And maybe fantasy isn't even the right one. Maybe it should be realism completely. Maybe it should be purely allegorical. Maybe you should combine them. Maybe you should transfer from one to the other and shift and combine and blah, it goes on and on, mix, merge, however you want to do it. It's 
keeps going on and on, but the point is not to sit there and look at all the options and go, oh my, which one is it? Uh, there's so many, it's an infinite spectrum of options. Yeah, it is. But the whole point of being like, is you have something you're trying to do. Yeah. So now you have a standard by which you can actually make these choices. You go, oh, I'm trying to be wondrous. So now I can understand if this choice will promote that or damage that and so on. And so that's... um. So that's sort of world building and Star Wars is a great example of world building and it's a great tool to learn from to see how that world uh, is so well built over the course of what, two hours? And that's, that's um, why is Star Wars Star Wars part one? Yes. Yeah, that is. Okay, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>